fellow teachers, I'm Ben Wilcox, and welcome to Teaching with Power. And I look forward to spending some time with you studying and learning from Joseph Smith history, verses 1 through 26 today. And thank you for joining me. With these lessons, my intention is to not only give you insight into the scriptures, but also give you methods and materials that will hopefully help you teach that insight to others in relevant and meaningful ways. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. So if you're interested in lesson plans, PowerPoint slides, the handouts that I make, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. But now, I invite you to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. And for an icebreaker, I like to start with a word search. I'll either display it as a slide, or I'll actually give it to my students as a handout. And their challenge? Find the word truth amidst all the other jumble of letters. And I might even make it a contest to see who can find it first. And here it is. I then ask, how is this activity somewhat like our lives? And I think it's a perfect illustration of what our world and lives are often like. Truth exists. It's out there. It's real. But it sometimes can be hard to find. It's sometimes easy for the truth to get lost amidst all of the other competing messages and opinions of the world. In fact, how many of you were able to find the word opinion in your search? I put a bunch of those in there. Opinions are a lot easier to come by. In order to find the truth, though, you've got to search. And this week, we're going to examine one man's search for truth. Or, more accurately speaking, one boy's search for truth. This lesson is not only applicable to adults, but it especially resonates with teenagers because they're his exact same age. The account of Joseph Smith's first vision stands as one of the greatest examples of truth-seeking that I know of anywhere. And as an admirer of great literature, I consider Joseph Smith history to be one of the greatest works of prose of all time. And that's not hyperbole. It's brilliant in its construction and profoundly relevant in its message. And you could spend hours digging into the abundant truths and principles taught in this short block of Latter-day Scripture. But as a teacher, you've got to pick and choose. So hopefully your students come to class having already read these verses. And that way you can spend the bulk of your time discussing what the Scriptures teach rather than just reading or introducing them. So the day before I was teaching, I'd send my students a message or invite them in a previous lesson to read verses 1 through 26, looking for the answer to one question. What does Joseph Smith's first vision teach us about seeking truth and receiving revelation? And to come prepared to talk about it. Well, after my icebreaker, the first activity I might do with my students here is this short searching challenge. The first thing we want to establish is audience. Who is Joseph Smith history, and consequently the entire Doctrine and Covenants and the Restoration itself, addressed to? Can you find the audience in the following phrases and verses? 
It's addressed to those that are inquirers after truth. People who want to be in possession of the facts. Individuals that hope to come to a certain conclusion. Those that desire to receive wisdom from God. And all who wish to have confidence in settling the question. And by the way, each of those phrases can also be found in the word search if you want to send your students into it to find them. But this is who Joseph wishes to speak to here. Inquirers after truth. People who want to be in possession of the facts, who want to come to certain conclusions, receive wisdom from God, and have confidence in settling the question. They're not interested in or satisfied with mere opinions. They want truth. And do these phrases describe you? Can you relate to them? If so, then I wish to address the rest of my lessons this year to you. In fact, I kind of like that as our theme for the entire course of study. Inquirers after truth. Joseph Smith himself was an inquirer after truth. He spent his entire life inquiring. And the Doctrine and Covenants stands as a record of that inquiry. It's an entire book documenting one man's inquiry. From the Sacred Grove all the way to Nauvoo, Joseph would just keep inquiring and inquiring and inquiring. And it was only the bullets of Carthage that would finally interrupt that search. So if you're a part of that audience, Joseph's audience, let's spend the rest of this year inquiring and discovering truth. But what makes discovering truth difficult is that there are so many voices out there. Like we illustrated with the icebreaker, sometimes it's difficult to separate truth from all the opinions. Now, yes, God sends prophets to help us out, like we talked about last week. But Jesus warned of false prophets in the last days as well. And how are we going to be able to recognize the difference? That was Joseph's problem. His environment is comparable to ours. He wanted truth, but he was surrounded by unusual excitement, no small stir, division, contending, Converts filing off, some to one party and some to another, which seems to suggest that their conversion was more surface or socially motivated. Their good feelings are more pretended than real. Remember, we're interested in things that are real, not pretended. Great confusion, bad feeling, contending, strife of words, Contests about opinions, confusion, strife, cries and tumults that are great and incessant, war of words, tumult of opinions. The teachers of religion of the different sects understand the same passages of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. Well, can you relate to Joseph's world? Have you ever felt like him? Confused by all the contending and divisions, opinions, contests, and wars of words? 
not just between differing religious voices, but secular voices that aim to tear down the religious ones. Everybody just filing off to one group or another, understanding the same things so differently from one another. I think it's really easy to relate to Joseph's confusion. Well, in the first pages of Joseph Smith history, I see three different ways that people use to try to convince or persuade others to believe their voice. And let's see if you can find them. And what makes this a little bit easier is the fact that they all begin with the letter P. See if you can find the three P's of persuading. And in verse 2, present. In verse 6, promote. And in verse 9, prove. And let's talk about each one in turn. And if you don't mind, I'd like to end with that first one. So let's begin with verse 6 and expand a little bit on these ideas. One way people might try to convince us that what they're saying is true is by getting up and promoting an extraordinary scene of religious feeling in order to have everybody converted. Do you understand what he's describing here? This is the emotional manipulation method of preaching. They're going to try and tap into your feelings to convert you through emotion. So they may try and get you to cry, or to get angry, or to make you feel intensely guilty or afraid of God's wrath and eternal suffering. They might use loud music with a powerful beat or an eloquent speaker. Now, I don't want to condemn emotion too strongly here. The Spirit does indeed communicate through our emotions. Music and the spoken word expressed eloquently can be powerful tools of the Spirit and are completely appropriate for a servant of God to employ. But the problem comes when it's forced, excessive, or planned, where a speaker approaches the situation with that as their goal. They say, I'm going to make them feel something. At such and such a point in the lesson or speech, I'll make them feel the Spirit. Well, that's not the speaker or the teacher's place. It's not their role. That's the Spirit's role. And the speaker simply tries to create an environment that allows the spirit to be there to do his job. That's one way a person may seek to persuade another. But there's another tactic as well. In verse 9, one may try to prove the truth with all their reason and sophistry. And sophistry is the use of faulty arguments with the intent to deceive. So with this technique... I try to reason you into belief. I convince you with all my knowledge and rhetorical prowess that what I'm saying is true, like a skilled debater or lawyer or politician. They say, you'll believe this because I'm going to build my case and proof so soundly that you won't be able to respond with an objection. If the first P, promoting, is all heart and no head, proving is all head and no heart. And again, I don't want to condemn the mind too much here either. One of the great pillars of my testimony rests on the reasonableness and rationality of the restored gospel. So what's the proper way to persuade? True prophets have to have a way of communicating the truth as well, right? How do they do it? And that's where our third word comes in. They do what Joseph Smith is doing right here in this chapter. They present the facts. 
they just they just present them. They present the facts in truth and righteousness as they have transpired. They don't try to manipulate your emotions. They don't try to prove their point or reason you into faith. They just present what they know and let you come to the conclusion yourself. If I'm teaching opinion, promoting and proving will be my go-to strategies. But if I'm teaching truth, all I need to do is present. And since many of you are teachers, this is an important concept to keep in mind as you teach. The best way to approach your lesson is to present. When you share personal experiences, just present them. When you bear your testimony, present it. This is what I know. This is what I've experienced. You really don't have to speak in some solemn, special tone. You don't have to shed tears, although you might, but that should be natural and unforced. When I teach seminary, I teach the same lesson five times in a day. And usually if there's emotion, it comes in my first couple of classes. But as the day progresses, the strength of those emotions starts to get a little spent through repetition. But you know, I found that the truth, the principle, the scriptures, and the spirit are what bring the power, not me. So if during my last class of the day, I'm not really visibly emotional anymore, it doesn't matter. The power doesn't come from me anyway. And that realization can be a real relief. A burden of responsibility is lifted when you realize that you just present and the spirit does the rest. And are the head and heart ignored when we present? No, the head and heart are incredibly important in discovering truth. But it's not the speaker that is touching you. It's the spirit that does this. And which of those two does the spirit communicate with? Both. Doctrine and Covenants 9, verse 2. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart, by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you. So all I do, if I'm a true prophet or servant or teacher, is present the truth, and the Holy Ghost does the rest. He touches the mind and heart when truth is taught. General Conference is a great example of speakers presenting the truth. Just reflect on the way that they teach. Their language is measured, straightforward, and calm. I don't sense any manipulation or proving in their teaching. They present the truth, and the Spirit testifies powerfully of their words in our minds and hearts. Joseph Smith history itself is the perfect example of this dynamic. There is an incredible power in the text. And as a missionary, it didn't matter who I was talking to, combative or receptive. When I recited the words of the first vision in a discussion, the atmosphere changed a distinct feeling that entered the room. The Spirit was always there to testify of the truthfulness of the first vision. And you could see it in their eyes. It was having an impact. Joseph's word always had an effect, even with the most skeptical and unbelieving of hearers. Arthur Henry King, a literature professor at BYU, and a very intelligent man who knew something about writing and the power of words. He described his experience with the first vision like this. When I was first brought to read Joseph Smith's story, I was deeply impressed. 
I wasn't inclined to be impressed. As a stylistician, I have spent my life being disinclined to be impressed. So when I read his story, I thought to myself, this is an extraordinary thing. This is an astonishingly matter-of-fact and cool account. This man is not trying to persuade me of anything. He doesn't feel the need to. He's stating what happened to him. And he is stating it, not enthusiastically, but in quite a matter-of-fact way. He's not trying to make me cry or feel ecstatic. And that struck me. And that began to build my testimony. For I could see that this man was telling the truth. See, Professor King understood this important truth about truth. Truth needs no promoting or proving. It stands on its own two feet without scaffolding, buttresses, or reinforcements. Therefore, it only needs to be presented. And two questions you might consider asking here. When have you seen examples of promoting, proving, or presenting? And what impact has a study of the first vision had on your faith? Well, one of the things that makes this story so powerful is its relevance to all of us. All members of the church must come to a certain conclusion about their faith. And Joseph teaches us how. No wonder that this is the first story of the Restoration. It's a story about an individual that finds himself in a world of confusion and strife and opinions, who wanted wisdom from God to learn the truth for himself. But what do we actually do to learn that truth? How does one inquire after truth? Joseph shows us how. Now, you can begin with any quest for truth that you have. Joseph's question was, which church should I join? But your question could be, is God real? Is the Book of Mormon true? Can God forgive my sins? Is there life after death? Anything. And then you just read Joseph Smith history with your question in mind. And as a teacher, I found that the best way to approach these incredibly deep verses is to just leave it very open-ended. Let Joseph Smith do the teaching and ask, what does Joseph teach you about inquiring after truth or getting answers to prayers or receiving revelation? And then you send them into verses 7 to 20 with that simple question in mind and then invite them to share what they discover. But if you feel that 7 through 20 is too big of a chunk for your students to tackle at once, you could assign half of the class to cover 7 through 13 and the other half 14 through 20. But as the teacher you should be prepared to respond to their comments and have a few thoughts to share yourself if the class needs a little spark to get going. One of the things I like to do is to break down each phrase into a personal question to the student. I call it the inquiring quiz. In their own inquiry after truth, have they tried these things yet? And we're just going to scratch the surface in this video. But allow me to share some of the phrases and words that stand out to me most. My mind was called up to serious reflection. Question, have I given the matter serious reflection? In our search for truth, pondering and working things out in our minds is a critical step in finding answers, as opposed to just filing off to one denomination or opinion. Joseph 
seriously reflected on his question. He didn't want to make that decision lightly, and neither should we. We don't want to make the same mistake that Oliver Cowdery makes in Doctrine and Covenants 9-7. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was, to ask me. We've got to do more than just ask. There was a lot that went into Joseph's search before he ever asked. He seriously reflected on his question. My feelings were deep and often poignant. Question, are my feelings deep? Sincerity and the depth of our desire is key in our search. If you had to compare your desire for truth to a water container, what would you compare it to? Is it a Dixie cup-sized desire or a barrel desire? God can often only fill your request to the proportion of the size of the container that you provide him with. How deep is your soul? Joseph's soul was deep. Therefore, God had ample room to place an answer there. Now look at those first two phrases, mind and heart. They show us that Joseph was open to being touched in both his mind, serious reflection, and his heart, deep feelings. He gave space and depth for the Holy Ghost to witness to him. And we too should be receptive in both of those areas. I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. The question here is, have I done my homework? Have I put boots on the ground? Are we doing everything in our power to find the answer? I can't just expect God and the Spirit to do all the work. Just look at what Joseph was willing to do. He talked to people. He attended meetings. He studied. This entire section is basically showing us what Joseph was willing to do to find his answer. And as you continue reading this section, you'll find many other words and phrases suggesting Joseph's willingness to act. We too have got to act if we want an answer. Often have I asked often. Joseph thought a lot about his question. This wasn't a one-and-done kind of thing. He was persistent and consistent. And there are a lot of phrases in these verses that suggest the passage of time. In process of time, at times, again and again, at length. Don't get the impression that Joseph just woke up one morning wondering about religion, walked out to the sacred grove, and got his answer. This took time. And our search for truth will also take time. We've got to be patient and persistent. Labored. Have I labored? Searching for truth is a labor-intensive activity. How can we expect to develop spiritual muscle or strength of testimony if we're not willing to strain and push and exercise our faith? God doesn't dispense truth in the way that Google does. You don't just type in your question and, boop, get a thousand different results to browse through. It's much more like mining for gold or for gemstones. It requires intellectual and spiritual digging, sweating, and swinging the pickaxe, and removing the excess until, eventually, you hit the prize. I was one day reading the Epistle of James. The question, have I studied the scriptures? 
And this is one of the most significant things that you can do to find answers to your questions. God has prepackaged so much of his truth and answers and wisdom within the standard works. I have always been impressed with how many of my questions and confusions and strifes that have been settled by the principles and stories of the scriptures. Now, I remember my dad used to say that there wasn't a problem or a question that you can have in this life that isn't answered or addressed in some way by the scriptures. And I believe that. Experiences confirm that to me. The scriptures are the greatest catalyst for truth that I know of. Seek and ye shall find. Now, quick note, in this case, Joseph did not get his answer from James 1.5, but he got guidance on how to get his answer. So sometimes that's the way that the scriptures will help us. Next, how to act. Am I willing to act on the answer that I'm given? And that's an essential prerequisite for discovering truth. If you're not willing to do anything about an answer, you're not as likely to receive one. So, so God asks, if I give you an answer, are you ready and willing to act on it if it comes? Have you counted the cost of an answer? And what will it mean for your life and the changes that are going to be required if it comes? I imagine that that's why some of the investigators that I taught on my mission said that they didn't receive an answer when they asked if the Book of Mormon was true, but because they had no willingness to change even if that answer had come. Ask of God. Well, what was the scripture that induced Joseph to act? James 1.5, the little scripture that changed the world. And I wonder if James knew when he wrote those words all those years ago, the impact that they were going to have on the future. If you lack wisdom, you don't have to rely on man to find it, or even the scriptures, as powerful as they are. I think that's why that verse had such a profound effect on Joseph's mind. He said, Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. And have you ever had a Scripture impact you in that way? And I know that I have. It was the idea of going directly to God for an answer to prayer that inspired Joseph so profoundly. And I don't believe that this was the first time Joseph ever said a prayer in his life. I'm sure that he'd been praying for help for years. But this was a different kind of prayer. A prayer that anticipated and made room for an answer. And so off he goes to a grove of trees near his home to make that attempt. So the question that I have to ask myself is, have I asked of God? Not just have I prayed, but have I asked God himself directly for the wisdom that I lack? Pray vocally. Have I asked vocally? There is something to vocal prayer that makes a real difference. And yes, we can pray in our hearts and minds and God will hear. But if you find that you're struggling to connect with heaven in a meaningful way, try vocal prayer. It really changes things. And while you're at it, pray alone. So if you're going to pray out loud, do it in a private place, some place where you're not likely to be interrupted. For Joseph, it was a grove of trees away from the house and his family. 
For you, it may be in your bedroom, or in your car, or in the outdoors. Personally, I love the setting for the first vision. The surroundings for Joseph are very symbolic. I think we often picture the first vision happening in warm weather with trees covered in leaves and greenery. But Joseph says that it's early spring. And historians figure March or early April. Now, any of you that live in New England, correct me if I'm wrong, but what is early spring like? It's not green and warm. Maybe uh, I, I picture the first vision being a little chilly. Some new growth starting to appear. Buds forming on the branches and a little green starting to peek through. But how fitting, though. The season was changing. It was awakening from the long, dark cold of winter. Well, spiritually speaking, the world, too, through this prayer, was going to awaken from the long, dark, cold season of apostasy to the beautiful, vibrant, living warmth and growth of the restoration. But what happens next? Thick darkness gathered around me. The adversary seemed to realize that this prayer was going to strike a major blow to his power and dominion. So Joseph is seized upon by some unseen power. Thick darkness gathers around him, and it seems to him that he was doomed to sudden destruction. Now at this point, I like to ask my students a question. I ask, do you think God was aware that this was happening to Joseph? Did it come as a surprise? Did an angel run into God at that point and say, uh, Elohim, Elohim, Joseph Smith is praying down there and Satan's attacking him. We need to do something about it. I don't picture it happening that way. I'm sure that God was very aware of what was happening. So then the question is, why would he allow this? What benefit is there to allowing Joseph to go through this terrifying experience? My thought? I think God wanted Joseph to realize something right from the beginning of the restoration. Satan has power, and he was going to do everything that he could to oppose Joseph's search for truth. It wouldn't be wise for Joseph to underestimate that power. But as powerful as that darkness was, God's light was even more powerful than that darkness. God could deliver him, and he does. Joseph is going to face that darkness many more times in his life. But when he did, I wonder if his mind drifted back to this very first experience with darkness and light in the sacred grove. And remember that God was stronger and could always deliver him. And maybe that's why Joseph was able to withstand so much opposition in his life. And what's the application for us? In our search for truth? Expect opposition. So, so the question I ask myself is, am I prepared to face opposition? Because more than likely, you will. Now, in that opposition, realize that God may allow you to struggle until you reach the moment when you are ready to sink into despair and abandon yourself to destruction. God sometimes waits until the moment of great alarm to come to the rescue. Why does he do that? 
Maybe because faith must be tested. Maybe because that is what makes testimony strong. Maybe because answers that come too easily are not valued as highly. The question that we've got to ask ourselves here is, am I willing to pray through the darkness? Often the answer and the light and the deliverance will only come after you've reached the moment of great alarm. So if you feel the darkness surrounding you, don't give up. Keep praying through the darkness. In process of time, the answer will come. Now at this point, if you'll humor me, I would love to just read these next few verses. This was one of my favorite things to do as a full-time missionary, to share this account and feel the spirit that it always invited. And I anticipate that there may be some of you out there that aren't members of my faith. And I would consider it a great privilege to just relate what happened to Joseph Smith after that darkness descended upon him. I guess I'll get to feel a little bit of that missionary joy again. And I, I pray that his words will touch your heart in the same way that they've touched mine. Joseph says, Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, Joseph, this is my beloved son. Hear him. So what can we expect if we're willing to do what Joseph did? God will answer. God will grant us the wisdom that we desire. Now, it may not be in as grand a fashion as this. This was the beginning of a new dispensation, and Joseph was going to play a key role in that restoration. But I believe that we can receive a manifestation and answer that is just as real and just as powerful as Joseph's. We've just got to be willing to continue praying through the darkness. and The answer will come. And one quick side note about the phrase, hear him. I know a lot has been said about differing versions of the first vision, usually in a tone of criticism. That's uh, too large of a subject to tackle here in any meaningful way. The best resource, if you have those kind of questions, the church's topical essay on that subject at this web address. But one point I want to make. I find the differing versions a positive thing. Joseph gives us additional details about his experience. And how awesome is that? One detail that he leaves out in Joseph Smith history is something else that he was praying to know, besides which church to join. He was also praying for forgiveness. And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Joseph, thy sins are forgiven. And realizing this, that hear him has so much more power for me. When I feel weighed down by my imperfections and my guilt and my sins, 
if I just approach God with a, a spirit of penitence and prayer, then I too will hear him speak words of comfort and forgiveness. And I really do love the first word of the restoration. The first word of the restoration is Joseph, right? He says, calling me by name. Just think of all the amazing truths that are restored in that one word. God is real. God speaks. God speaks to man. God cares about man. God knows who we are. He knows our names. We just need to hear him. So the question, do I realize that God knows me? And here, may I skip ahead a little bit and interject some phrases from verse 22? There's something critical to consider here. I could imagine somebody walking away from this lesson and saying, well, yeah, that may work for Joseph Smith, but he was Joseph Smith. Of course this happens to him. He's the prophet of the restoration. Who am I to expect God to talk to me? Well, I think the answer to that concern comes in the way that Joseph describes himself. And how does he do that in verse 22? He calls himself an obscure boy. And later, a boy of no consequence in the world. You might argue with Joseph there and quote John Taylor from section 135 when he says that Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. He was not an obscure boy of no consequence in the world. It's a bit of an ironic statement. But the point remains, God speaks to obscure people of no consequence in the world. You don't have to be a Joseph Smith to gain wisdom. If God could answer the prayers of an obscure 14-year-old farm boy from Palmyra, New York, in the early 1800s, he can certainly answer yours. He knows your name and will speak to you. In the answer, at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. So the question here is, am I willing to accept an answer that has never entered into my heart yet? Sometimes we pray expecting or hoping for a specific answer, the answer that we want, one that we feel is best for us. That can't be. We've got to pray with an open mind and heart to whatever is best in God's wisdom. I'm sure that Joseph would have just preferred to have God tell him which church to join rather than restoring one. That was a, a really intimidating answer for him to receive. But we, too, have got to be open to the possibility of a tough answer. And at this point, I'd like to shift my question just a little bit. Because Joseph was willing to inquire and do all these things that we just talked about, what were the results of his actions? Three things that I would mark. I was answered. All was well. And he learned for himself. I love that image of Joseph going home and leaning up against the fireplace. If you ever get a chance to go to Palmyra, go to the, the restored Smith family cabin and, and just envision him leaning up against that fireplace and saying those amazing words. All is well. I'm well enough off. I have learned 
for myself. If we're willing to do as Joseph did, we can also expect to say the same thing. We can say that all is well and I have learned for myself. That's the result and the destiny of all true inquirers after truth. And just look at what we've learned together. Look at all the guidance and the help that we've been given on finding truth. And at this point, I might ask the following. When has one of these truths helped you to learn for yourself? And I want you to know, as my listeners, that I believe deeply in the story. This really happened. I know it. It resonates with my heart and my mind. It happened in the way that Joseph has presented it to us here, without promotion or proving. Now, I've been to the sacred grove, and I've felt the spirit and solemnity of that beautiful place. But more importantly, I have personally experienced my own sacred groves. That's the great promise of the first vision, that we can do the same as Joseph and receive the same results. There are locations where I have felt the light of my Heavenly Father and Savior's wisdom illuminating my mind and heart, my sacred groves, in my parents' unfinished basement in Draper, at the bedside of a small apartment in Teofla Otoni, Brazil, under a hotel pool water slide in Moab, Utah, the endowment room of the Provo Temple, These are some of my sacred groves. And so it's with a deep sense of gratitude that I say to you, I have been able to find truth. I've come to a certain conclusion. I've received wisdom from God. I've settled the question. I have learned for myself that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God and that the church he helped to restore is true and living. If we're willing to reflect and labor and study and ask and pray through the darkness, then God will settle the questions of all inquirers after truth, even if they feel that they are obscure and of no consequence in the world. Well, I may not spend as much time in 21 to 26, but I would like to give you some brief ideas for teaching it. For an icebreaker, I'd ask if any of them had ever been accused of disturbing or annoying somebody else. And this question works really well with teenagers because most of them have had that experience, especially the boys. I know that I had that experience. I have been told by many a teacher that I was disturbing the class. And I frequently remember being told by my older sisters that I was annoying them. That's a little brother's job, right? Well, I think we all get the distinct impression that being a disturber and an annoyer is a bad thing. Until you read verse 20 and discover that there was somebody else described as being a disturber and an annoyer. Who was it? Well, it was Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was a disturber and an annoyer. So if you've ever been called that, you're in good company. But why was he called a disturber and an annoyer? A disturber and an annoyer of who or what? He was a disturber and an annoyer of Satan and his kingdom. So if you're good at disturbing and annoying, just be sure to direct that annoying energy at the right kingdom. 
Satan's. And to help my students learn from this section, I'd give them this personal study guide and allow them time to complete it and then use it to spark a classroom discussion. I call it How to Disturb and Annoy Satan. So let's go through the questions. Number one, when we disturb and annoy the adversary, what can we expect in return? And if you look at the end of verse 20, we can expect opposition and persecution. Satan doesn't take our disturbing and our annoying lightly. When we've learned for ourselves and we've received wisdom and light from God and are disturbing, annoying the adversary, we can expect to have some opposition and persecution come our way. Joseph certainly experiences that. And in this next section, you see that all over. As soon as he shares his experience, it's persecution for the rest of his life. So, Question number two is more of a personal one. Have you ever faced opposition and persecution for your faith? And what happened? Question number three. Besides his family, who did Joseph first share his experience with and how did they react? In verse 21, it was a Methodist minister and he reacted with great contempt. In fact, I kind of have to chuckle when I read the line, I was greatly surprised at his behavior. And I say, really, Joseph, you were surprised? Can't you picture this? Joseph excitedly telling this Methodist preacher, guess what? I prayed for wisdom and God answered my prayer. And he told me that all churches are wrong. Implication, including yours. But I think that just tells you something about Joseph's character. He's just a boy after all. He's guileless. That's the word that comes to my mind. A little naive. And you can kind of get it, right? He's just had this amazing experience with God. And he thinks, well, of course other people are going to celebrate that with me, right? Sadly, it didn't quite go that way. And question number four, what are the three A's of disturbing and annoying Satan? Look for the verbs that begin with A in the following verses. And I like this, these three things, and they don't all come from this section. But the three things that we can do that will annoy the adversary are to act, affirm, and assert. That's exactly what Joseph did throughout his life. From age 14 until his death, he just kept acting and affirming and asserting despite all the opposition and persecution. Question number five, how did Joseph feel about the persecution? At the end of verse 23, he says that it was often the cause of great sorrow to himself. So some people are the type that can just handle persecution. They they just kind of let those things roll off their backs. It doesn't affect them. Not Joseph. It did cause sorrow in him. It hurt him. And so when we struggle, I guess it's kind of nice to know that this wasn't easy for Joseph either. He did have some help, though. Question number six, what was something that helped Joseph to act, affirm, and assert? Verse 24, he found inspiration in the scriptures. Joseph Smith apparently had a scripture hero. It was Paul. He really connected with Paul. And he mentions him a number of different times in Latter-day Scripture. Well, we too can find heroes in scripture characters that inspire us to do what's right. 
whether it's Nephi or Moses or Peter or Joseph Smith, the scriptures provide us with many examples of faith from which to draw strength from. Thus, question number seven, who is a character from scripture that inspires you and how? Question number eight, a very open-ended question. What is your favorite line from Joseph's testimony here in verse 25 and why? And I love this verse. It really needs no commentary. We get to hear Joseph acting and affirming and asserting. You can just sense his conviction and certainty. So it was with me. I had actually seen a light. And in the midst of that light, I saw two personages. And they did, in reality, speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision. And who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it. And I could not deny it. Oh, I love that. So questions 9 and 10 are two personal questions. Do you believe Joseph's assertion and affirmation here? Why? And what helps you to act on, assert, and affirm your beliefs? Well, I hope that we can all be disturbers and annoyers of Satan, that we can stand up to the opposition and persecution that he throws at us. Let's collectively make the adversary wring his hands and roll his eyes and huff with irritation. How satisfying would it be to see that? Joseph Smith found inspiration in Paul, and we can find inspiration in Joseph. Hopefully, we can act and assert and affirm that we know what Joseph Smith is saying here is true. That we can say, I know it, and I know that God knows it, and I cannot deny it. I hope that you've enjoyed our time together this week. I know I have. And if you did, I invite you to share it with somebody else that you feel it could help. Thank you for watching. As always, get out there and teach with power.